I'm going to make an assumption this morning, and you're going to think that I'm wrong, but I'm right. That's okay. Just about everyone in here has heard Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture at some point in their lifetime. You're like, I ain't never listened to a piece of classical music in my lifetime. You have. You might not have recognized it as such, but believe me, if you've been to a 4th of July celebration and there was music playing over the loudspeakers during the fireworks show, two things are certain. You've heard Lee Greenwood's I'm Proud to Be an American, and you have probably heard the 1812 Overture. Da, 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 You're like, oh, I have heard that. Yeah, yeah. So for some reason, we've adopted this music into our patriotic repertoire of music. It has nothing to do with America, but it, we sure claim it as our own. Tchaikovsky himself disliked the piece. I mean, he was the one who wrote it, and he did not like it. He claimed that it was too loud and noisy, and it's like, I wish you would have done something about that yourself. It was merely commissioned for a 25th year celebration of a Russian czar named Alexander I. It was to commemorate the Russians' defense against, against Napoleon in 1812. And for that reason, Tchaikovsky, he pulled out all the stops. Um, he wanted this 15-minute long song to really hit a crescendo at the very end. So in its original production, get this, this is awesome, Tchaikovsky actually paid local churches to chime their bells in unison at the very end to signal the victory that had been won by the Russian army so many years ago. But the bells from the, bells tower, from the bell towers all across that town, that's not what brought the 1812 overture its notoriety. It's the cannons. You heard me right. The cannons. Tchaikovsky employed 16 cannons, actual cannons, to fire off in succession near the very end of the piece. Sixteen of them. When Rachel and I went to hear this back in college, the U.S. Marine Band opted for massive timpani drums instead of the, uh, instead of the, the cannons in the, this new concert hall that we were uh, sitting in. But, but just go ahead and Google it. You can see it for yourself. At last year's A Capital Fourth celebration in Washington, D.C., the military shot off 105 millimeter howitzers in time with the music to bring it to this biggest finale ever. It is massive. You feel the music and you feel it uh, just kind of reverberating throughout the, where, where it's being played. We love grand finales. It's what signals to the onlookers that the piece is very near the end. It prompts applause. It leaves you awestruck or shell-shocked, one or the other. It's just how you're supposed to end things. Think of like the Hallelujah Chorus, right? At the end of the 140-minute long Handel's Messiah comes, Hallelujah, and everybody stands in unison because they, it's the signal of the end of it all. Well, we have walked through the Lord's Prayer for the last two months, taking it line by line, and we have now come to the end. The latter part of verse 13 reads, For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. It's a little difficult for me to call that line the grand finale of the Lord's Prayer. 
doesn't really seem right. There, there aren't any church bells going off. There's no cannon blasts. But its function is the same. It serves the exact same purpose. And the church, we don't call them finales. We call a line like this a doxology. We have sung the doxology or a song called the doxology uh, for several months here at the very end of our service this morning. And we will again today at the very end. Uh, we have to. We sing this as a, a closing act of praise to God. That song that we'll sing, praise God from whom all blessings flow. But doxology in generic terms, it's a closing expression of praise to God. You can really pick up on, on the most in reading through the New Testament books. Peter, Paul, John, they scouted them throughout their writings. They, they didn't just save doxologies for the very, like, sincerely John part of the, of the letter. They would actually scatter them all throughout them. Whenever they come to a, a strong theological point, Paul would just, like, run off into some doxology. Let me give you a few. In Romans chapter 11, verse 36, Paul says, For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Philippians 4.20, Paul says, Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. 1 Timothy 1.17, to his young son in the faith, Timothy, a new pastor, he says, Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Peter jumps in on this too when in chapter 4, verse 11 of 1 Peter, he says that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom being the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Jude as well, it's found in the book of Jude in verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and and majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forever. Amen. We just don't speak like that anymore. And it's almost as if the authors of scriptures were just, they were so filled with what had just been written, the truth of who God is, and that they just go off almost on this theological tangent of, of who God is and what he's done for us. All of these are doxologies. Mere teaching, mere letter writing, it's just not good enough for them to convey his goodness, so their pen breaks out in song. But notice that this isn't empty applause. These aren't throwaway sentences of emotional expression. Sometimes we do that. We, we tend to kind of babble a few things out, and it's possible to read some of the doxologies and just, and just say, okay, all right, Peter, get to the point. John, what are you trying to say here? All the glory and power and dominion. And all, all, what, what do we, they actually have weight to them. They actually teach us about the very nature of God. In fact, it'd be a pretty good personal study for someone in here to do on their own to build an actual doctrine of God based solely upon the doxology passages of the Bible. I think you'd find that it's a little bit more easy than you think. But I've lost some of you already. You're reading the Lord's Prayer in your Bible. You followed along with me in Matthew chapter 6. Yes, you read from the screen, but 
You're looking at your Bible in your lap or perhaps the one that's on your phone and the app, and it doesn't match up. Maybe you traditionally read out of the ESV, the NIV, or the HCSB, or even the New American Standard Bible, versions of Scripture, all good translations, some more solid than others, obviously. But this line in some of those, or in each of those that I just mentioned, this doxology for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen, it's not there. And you're like, I got a defective Bible. What's, what's wrong with my Bible? It's not found in verse 13. It's not found in the Lord's Prayer heading. It's not found in Matthew chapter 6. In fact, in your copy of Scripture, it's not found anywhere in the book of Matthew. So what does that mean? Hopefully your Bible has some kind of notation in the margins or at the bottom of the page. I encourage you to read those, to use those resources. The translators of Scripture put them there for a reason. It's a good, long discussion that we have tried to help clear up in several of our smaller group studies that have happened on Sunday evenings throughout the year. Um, That's not a commercial, but it is a commercial. Um, I hope that you'll come to those so you can have a better understanding of that. But the short answer is that this line isn't found in any of the earlier Latin texts of Scripture. But it is found in some of the earliest Greek copies of Scripture. Now that might scare you. It might kind of put you in a tailspin of questions about the trustworthiness of your Bible. I hope it doesn't, but I do hope that it takes you down a path of good, serious study about how we received our English Bible. Friend, I'm telling you, if you're honest with yourself and studious enough, I can almost guarantee you that you, as I, you will emerge from that conflict more confident in God's Word than when you began. So I hope you'll do some study on that. But all of this aside, the questions that we might have as to where does this passage of Scripture come from, you get pretty deep pretty quickly there. The fact remains that it would have been highly irregular for a Jewish prayer to have just ended with the request, but deliver us from the evil one. And that's it. Highly irregular. Closings, conclusions, statements of praise, they were the norm in Jewish prayer lives. So I actually don't have a hard time whatsoever believing that Jesus did end his model prayer for us to pray with some kind of doxology. And and this one seems to sum up the totality of the prayer well. It talks about the kingdom. Your kingdom come. It talks about the power. Your will be done. It talks about the glory. Hallowed be your name. The Lord's Prayer It's not supposed to be an exhaustive commentary on prayer. Jesus never commands us to pray this and only pray this. Our prayer lives would be very stagnant if all we could do was our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy. He doesn't just want us to pray this from rote memory. No, this is supposed to be a model, a schematic, an outline of what true biblical prayer looks like. So even if you have questions about whether or not this line in its original is in the text in Matthew, it's going to help you to know that it is taken from Scripture elsewhere. 
to see this, at least the fullest picture of this, you have to turn way back to what Michael read for us at the very beginning this morning to 1 Chronicles chapter 29. It's been a while since you've done your devotions out of 1 Chronicles. I can see some of you are like, I don't even know that's a book of the Bible. 1 Chronicles 29, it's the story of where David is on the tail end of his life. The shepherd boy who had become king. You know David from Goliath fame. You know uh, David of Bathsheba, Bathsheba infamy. He's near the end of his life. And those of you who have studied his life before, you know that uh, one of his one life's ambitions was to build a temple for God and of God. He wanted to build a concrete residence among God's people. So the Israelites had the tabernacle where God met with them. But that was pretty much a tent, and David felt that was insufficient for the glory of God. So since they had the kingdom established, the right king on the throne, the golden age of Israel established, all that's taking place, many believed that now was the time to build a temple and worship and praise to God. The Lord was assenting to this. He, He agreed that now is the time, except for one thing, or not thing, person. David. The Lord wanted the Israelites to build a temple, but he did not want David to build the temple. David was a man after God's own heart. In fact, uh, that fact remained that he had, uh, but the fact remained that he had too much blood on his hands, Scripture tells us. He had been a man of war almost his entire life, but worse than that, David had shed innocent blood in murdering Uriah, a sin which he had been forgiven by God for but he had continuous natural ramifications that followed, as some of our sins do. So David wasn't allowed to build the temple of God. But David does the next best thing. He so badly wants a temple of God in Jerusalem that David procures all the materials. He gets all the tools together. He employs all the workers, all the skilled workers and those who could just be hard labor men. He had all the plans drawn out and it was a ton that he had done. David had everything ready so that on day one of Solomon's reign, Solomon's ordination day, all Solomon had to do was say, go and the temple would start being built. So where we find ourselves in 1 Chronicles chapter 29 is where David has already compiled all the material and all the skilled labor needed. And as much as he can, he wants to dedicate, he wants to pray a prayer of dedication over all this stuff that one day would become the temple of God. He wouldn't see it with his eyes. He wouldn't see it in his lifetime. But he wanted to pray that the Lord would be in and through every single thing done and built. And so he picks up in verse 10 of 1 Chronicles 29. Therefore David blessed the Lord before the assembly. And David said, blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. So I want you to hear those words in their original context. David is saying, this kingdom is yours. It's not mine. It's not my son's. It's not Solomon's. 
It's not my family's. This kingdom is yours, God. He says, yours is the power. He marked this in verse 12 when he proclaimed, both riches and honor come from you and you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. He talks about riches and honor. Everything, it comes from God. It's within God's power to dispense to any and all that he wishes. And he says, yours is the glory, not unto us, O Lord, but to you. He says in verse 13, now therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. How fitting is it that David praised this doxology over the temple in the Old Testament? where God would actually take up residence and send His Spirit to dwell among His people. And how much more appropriate is it that at the very end of the model prayer, we, the temple, know you not that your bodies are the temple of God? How much more fitting is it that we ought to say this exact same doxology prayer of the Most High God whom God has sent His Spirit within to indwell us that we might pray this over our own lives. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So we say with David, this is not ours. Yours. There's so many powerful words in this, and, and when you put them all together, it's, oh, it's so powerful. But that first word, yours, is so very important. Christian, you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. And so when we go to the Lord in prayer, we are essentially saying, yours. I'm yours. Everything I have is yours. I don't own anything. It's yours. This is not my kingdom. This is not our kingdom. It's yours. We don't have any rights or privileges to call the shots or name the laws. Ours is only obedience. The kingdom of God, is it has no flag, it has no specified language, it has no boundary, no hierarchy, save Christ supreme. Here on earth, I said earlier, we've got the legislative, executive, and judicial branch, but in the kingdom of God, he alone proclaims, enforces, and judges the nations. Here we have a representative form of government, but in the kingdom of God, each has a personal relationship with his king. Here we've got elections, but in the kingdom of God, he can never be dethroned. Here we focus on the individual and personal liberty, but in the kingdom of God, I said earlier, we don't own a thing. The house, the car, the family, those children, they are not yours, they are God's. So when I pray, yours is the kingdom, I am signing a declaration of absolute, all-encompassing, never-ending, no-holds-barred, untethered, unrestricted, total dependence on God and His rightful reign. Yours is the kingdom. And it's a blessing to know that He owns it. I wonder how many of you are like me 
and you have been put on hold this week. I see a, a few hands. Some of you having to deal with insurance stuff, you have to call in and, oh my goodness. You're wanting an answer to a question. You keep getting passed around and around with no end in sight. I remember a few years ago, we were trying to purchase a new vehicle. It was during COVID, which is a whole bunch of mess there. I tried to basically have a telephone sit-in with a particular unhelpful operator. I said, look, you are going to have to disconnect me because I am not hanging up until I have a concrete answer. I'm just not hanging up. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm just not hanging up. I put my headphones in. I did a ton of other stuff in the meantime. And it was, when it was all said and done, those of you who have worked in call centers, you hate people like me, I know. I looked at the call time when it was over, and it was, an, it was over two hours I had spent on the phone. You think I got my concrete answer? No, <laughs> I didn't. I wasn't trying to be a jerk. I, I just was out of options. I felt bad for the operator because they were as lost as, they, as, as lost as I was in the issue. I don't know their pay package, but I highly doubt that they were very far up the company's leadership structure. There was no way for me to get in contact with the CEO of the company. I had been told, at least, that I'd been passed up the ladder as far as I could go. I was talking to the manager of managers kind of thing. But I got nothing out of the issue. But here when we say, yours is the kingdom, or his is the kingdom, that is not the case. There's a Puritan author and pastor, Thomas Manton, he once wrote, we go not to a servant or subordinate agent who may be, who may be controlled by a higher power, but we go to an absolute Lord to whom none can say, what do you think you are doing? All of this is His. And we have access to the owner of it all. Because His is the kingdom. He has full right to do what He pleases with what He owns. And He has all ability, which is what is meant by yours is the power. Yours is all power is essentially what we are saying. We don't deal with absolute power much these days. We have the checks and balance system in the U.S. The judicial, executive, and legislative branches are supposed to be subordinate to each other. At least that's how it was originally written. Whether that takes place all the time, that's doubtful. But there was a time when that idea of checks and balances in government, it was foreign. It was what the sovereign said is what happened. What the monarch decreed took place. Absolute power is it's dangerous to those who are corruptible. Um, if you study your history, or at least you've watched Disney's Robin Hood recently, you know what I mean. I know. Top shelf, low shelf for you this morning. You know that King John of England, who lived in the 1200s, he was not the best guy ever to sit on the throne. He did what he wanted. He locked up and starved people without cause, including his former wife. Whew, man. There's evidence that he murdered his nephew. He taxed people relentlessly. And to all of these things, he got off simply because he was king. 
He didn't have to answer to anybody. But one day, all of that caught up to him when 40 barons trapped him in a field and they forced him to affix his seal to a document that's now called the Magna Carta. Essentially, it bound even the king to the rule of law. It says, you must obey the law. Which prior to that, all powerful rulers, they could do whatever they wanted to. Well, God is incorruptible. He deals with us through His holy character, which from flows grace and love. So when we say His is the power, it means that no one is ever going to catch God in a field and force Him to sign a great charter relinquishing His control to another. That won't, we won't do that. He won't ever be trapped in that way, and we don't want that. He is all-powerful and incorruptible. Is His will difficult at times? Oh my word, yes. Are his ways confusing? I think we could all say a hearty amen to that. We do not understand what he is doing. If I were given the opportunity, would I run things differently in this world? I would. And thankfully, the Lord has not blessed me with that kind of control. Because I have seen firsthand how he works all things together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. He does things that I don't think should be done, but in the end of it all, I see why He did them. And He's a good God. Every Wednesday, we begin our morning and evening Bible studies here at the church by taking praise items. Sometimes it's got to kind of prime the pump to get people thinking about what they are thankful for. Other times they just, everybody, yeah, Lord did this. I, I saw the hand of God in this way. More often than not, we, we get several praise items that begin with very difficult issues. And, and I'm standing up here and I'm thinking, did they misunderstand? We're not taking prayer requests yet. We're talking about praise items. And they're talking about how they got a really bad uh, test come out uh, from a medical test this week. But then, time after time, I have heard saint after saint say, I received this bad news, but it put me in the position to tell this person about Christ. If we can see that on earth, how much more will we see that in glory? His is the power. He does what He wills and praise His name. He has our best interests at heart. If you're going through a trial today, and I know that many of you are, you've confessed it to me, you've, you've testified about it personally and maybe even in a larger group setting, can I tell you a phrase that I often say on my best days? I don't say this all the time. I wish I did say this all the time. Whenever I'm going through a trial on my best days, when I'm trying to focus on what God has for me, I say this phrase over and over and over again. My God, my good and God's glory. My good and God's glory. This will work out for my good and God's glory. That's what this passage of Scripture is speaking to. When we say that yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory, that all of this will work together for my good and your ultimate glory. Go back to that 
picture of David again in 1 Chronicles 29. David is about to embark, or rather have Solomon embark, upon one of the, buildest, one of the biggest building projects of all time. A couple of years ago, a design company looked at this text and surmised that there would be a modern-day equivalent of nine and a half million pounds of gold, 75 million pounds of silver used for the building of the temple. Were it built today, they concluded, it would at least cost $4 billion. This building that David has just laid out for Solomon, his son, to build, it would be on par with the value of Buckingham Palace, but it is 2% of the size of that palace. This is immaculate. This had, to, this had the makings of being another Tower of Babel, where people were just in it to make a name for themselves where people could look at the temple and say, yeah, my dad built that. My granddad built that. Or I was there. I put my own blood, sweat, and tears. That's got my name written all over it. David wanted to avoid that at all costs. So in verse 13, he says, Now therefore, our God, we thank You and praise Your glorious name. But who am I? Who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer so willingly as this? All things come from You, and of Your own we have given You. We are as aliens and pilgrims before You, as were all our fathers. Our days on earth are as a shadow and without hope. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have prepared to build You a house for Your holy name is from Your hand, and it is all Your own. We, we call this Solomon's temple just to distinguish it from the others that come after it historically, but every nail, beam, gold, silver bar, every calorie of energy that was expelled by the craftsmen to build this temple, it was for God's name. His glory. And so it should be with us in who dwell the Spirit of the Most High God. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Think about forever with me. Just for a moment. Forever. One of the things that you'll notice throughout all the doxologies of the New Testament, just about every one of them, is they bring in some idea of the duration of praise. Forever and ever. Amen. Is most common. I know some of you think that was penned by Randy Travis, but wasn't. Forever and ever. Amen. It's almost as if forever not long enough. <laughs> Forever and ever. Amen. In fact, 15 of the 16 doxologies in the New Testament, they invoke the wording forever. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, it probably puts it in its most poetic form. The translators of the New King James, I don't, I don't think they did it justice. 
ESV is probably better for this text. Peter is praising the name of Christ and he writes, to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. I love that Peter keys in on that phrase from now until the day of eternity. Because there is coming a day in which there will be no more days. Only one eternal, continuous, everlasting day. Friend, this is what we mean when we sing. There is coming a day when no heartache shall come. No more clouds in the sky and no more tears to dim the eye. All is peace forevermore on that happy golden shore. What a day, glorious day, that will be sing that chorus and what a day that will be when my jesus i shall see and i look upon his face the one who saved me by his grace when he takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land what a day glorious day that will be i hope you realize that when we sing what a day that will be we're not saying on the calendar, there will be one, we are talking one eternal day where there are no more nights, no more partings, no clouds, no tears, no sin, no heartache, no wars, no cancer, no Alzheimer's, no pain, no loss, no hurt, no depression, no anxiety, no anger, no fear. Why? Why? Because yours is the kingdom and the power, and the glory forever in one eternal day. There's one more word, and we're done. Amen. Amen. What's your relationship to that word? Amen. I grew up in a church where this word was used a lot and goading the preacher to preach a little longer. That never happens. To preach a little harder, to preach a little louder. It very rarely was amen. It was more like, amen! <laughs> like there was an H somewhere in amen. I can remember some revival services where I had to strain to hear the preacher sometimes because the congregation's amens were pretty much just drowning them out. For most of us, though, 
our relationship to this word, amen, it's just normally applied where we find it here in the text at the end of a prayer. You'll see that in Scripture too. But what's even more interesting is that amen is actually used more often than not in the Old Testament as a legal term. If you've ever had to give testimony in a courtroom, you'd have to step up on the stand and you'd be asked, do you swear that Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth to help you God? I know they've changed it here lately, but the Old Testament Jewish answer to that would be, Amen. Amen. In fact, there are only a few occasions in the Old Testament when it's just used as we use it today as an exclamation of praise Usually, it's in reference to some law that the Lord is establishing. You really see this in the book of Numbers where God lays out a law and the whole congregation of Israel in the book of Deuteronomy, they they respond by saying, Amen, in unison. Saying, we agree, or we testify that we will hold to what you have just said is the law. It means, Amen means, let it be so. Or probably, A more nuanced way to say that in the Old Testament is, yes, I will make it so. So I want you to hear me on this point. Do not treat amen as the throwaway word to close the incantation. I've actually been kind of convicted this week as to how I use it so lightly. When we say amen at the end of the Lord's Prayer, we are solemnly affirming and vowing that all that we have just prayed, it will be upheld in our lives. We are swearing to the Almighty to hallow His name, to work in His kingdom, to obey His will, to depend upon Him for our daily bread, to ask forgiveness for our sins, to give forgiveness as He has given forgiveness to us, to endure trials and to stay away from evil. Amen means let it be so in my life. That's a tall order. If you're like me, I've been studying this word amen for like a couple of days, just one word this week. I have this overwhelming sense of there's no way I can do that. And friend, that is why Revelation chapter 3 verse 14 doesn't just say amen, it calls somebody the amen. Christ himself is named as the Amen, the faithful and true witness. I want you to understand when I say that, Jesus is God's Amen. When God sent His Son to this world, He was saying, Amen, let it be done so in the world. May love and forgiveness be granted to these wretched sinners who I formed from the dust May the Son of my womb, may, may Christ be the propitiation, the atonement for their sin. Let it be done. He's the vow 
to do all that God has promised. And that's why almost 500 years ago, a man by the name of Martin Luther was writing to his friend named Peter Beskendorf about the Lord's Prayer. And he said this, My friend Peter, you must always speak the Amen firmly. Never doubt that God in His mercy will surely hear you and say yes to your prayers. Never think that you are kneeling or standing alone. Rather think that the whole of Christendom, all devout Christians are standing there beside you and you are standing among them in common, united petition which God cannot and will not disdain. Do not leave your prayer without having said or thought very well. God has heard my prayer. This I know as a certainty and a truth. That is what amen means. That he hears us and he works in us and through us and for us. And so, I just have one question. Can you solemnly and truly pray? Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Can you say amen to that? Father, take your word and plant it so deep in us. Thanks for listening to New Hope Church's podcast. If you would like to listen to more content from our church, follow us at newhopefwbc.com.